Constance Bonnick, former United Nations Assistant Secretary General and Humanitarian Coordinator for Iraq, will present Iraq and the Urgency for United Nations Reforms on Thursday, March 23rd at 7.30 p.m. at the Berkeley Friends Church at Cedar and Sacramento Streets. A $10 donation is requested to benefit the East Bay Coalition to support Self-Rule for Iraqis, the Middle East Children's Alliance, and American Friends Service Committee. And you're listening to KPFA, KPFA in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and uh, online at kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. In darkness From the ones Who walk In light Light them up Boys There's your picture Drop the shadows Out of This is Jennifer Stone With Stone's Throw and today I'm, I've got in my hand a copy of Street Spirit that I picked up on the bus on my way over here. And I'm looking at the page with poor Leonard's almanac on it. Let's see. It's all about art and artists. Ah, yes. And I've written all over the margin. Why do we do this word work, you know? Why? Because time worships language. Yes, uh, I love these definitions and these uh, original thoughts by Leonard Roy Frank is the guy. Let's see, 14 March 2006. I'm thinking uh, that, well, the one that strikes home for today, because today I want to talk about uh, Good Night and Good Luck, uh, a movie that's just out on DVD as of today. Got to rush out and get it. Let's start with George Orwell here. George Orwell says that the opinion that art should have nothing to do with politics is itself a political attitude. Now, we all know that, but it's getting harder and harder. Uh, most people moan and say, oh, I don't want to do uh, politics. You know, I just want to. I just want conservative art, I guess, is what they mean. Is there such a thing as conservative art? Uh, says here, Joyce Carol Oates, right, art does the same things dreams do. We have a hunger for dreams. Art fulfills that hunger. So much of real life is a disappointment. That's why we have art. Oh, okay, up to a point. They have, of course, Bertolt Brecht's famous definition, the one I use all the time about art is not a mirror held up to reality but a hammer with which to shape it. Yes, we know all about that. Uh, let's see. 
Ah, this is better. Frederick Nietzsche, good old Nietzsche. The great end of art is to strike the imagination with the power of a soul that refuses to admit defeat, even in the midst of a collapsing world. Ah, yes, that was, <laughs> that was, that was the sort of thing they taught us back in the middle of the last century. Transcend, transcend. Yes, that's when Edward R. Murrow was, uh, what is it? A crusader. Yes. Here's one more from Iris Murdoch, the English, the Irish-born English writer. Uh, this is from the 70s. She says, art is not cozy and it is not mocked. Art tells the truth that ultimately matters. It is the light by which human beings can be mended. And gosh knows we need some mending here. So I want to say a little bit about the, the movie Good Night and Good Luck because, as I said, it's out on DVD. So all the teachers and the people who like to get a, a film and have a, have a film club gathering and argue, uh, need to go out and rent, uh, the DVD. And I think the first thing to do is read you some notes to sort it all out. Some notes from, uh, Nicholas Lehman's article called The Wayward Press, The Murrow Doctrine, and Why the Life and Times of the Broadcast Pioneer Still Matter. You can find this in the January 23 issue of the New Yorker of this year. And basically, he tries to explain the reasons why uh, Ed Murrow's shtick wouldn't fly today, how it was possible for him to do it uh, in the 50s, uh, because actually he had the federal uh, government behind him. Now, uh, let's see. First thing he says is that the birth of broadcast journalism occurred on Sunday, March the 13th, 1938. Right, that's... Uh, Yesterday, yes, the day after the Nazi troops entered Austria. And this is about the time, you know, that Edward R. Murrow pulled off uh, his uh, his shows. Uh, after that, after 1938, the exigencies of war in Europe turned him into uh, a radio reporter. It's fascinating stuff, this, uh, once again... It's the Murrow Doctrine. Check it out. It's in the January 23rd issue of The New Yorker. And uh, let's see. About those shows, here is Archibald McLeish. He wrote, uh, yes, he wrote to Murrow saying, You burned the city of London in our houses, and we felt the flames that burned it. Yes, on the spot, reporting broadcast journalism. I guess it must have come as an incredible shock to my parents, to people of that generation. Uh, Murrow got congratulatory telegrams from FDR, that kind of thing. Uh, anyway, um, the Radio Act of 1927 established a system in which the government owned the airwaves. You remember that, yes. Uh, now, rather than 
broadcast itself, however, that is, rather than the government broadcasting, it decided to grant licenses for locations on the spectrum to private companies. And then came this fateful phrase, some of you who know all this stuff will remember, quote, if public convenience, interest, or necessity will be served thereby. Now, that's when they decided to grant the licenses. Now, do you think, ask yourself, if you think today the uh, licensed broadcasters that we have on our media, do you think that the public convenience, interest, or necessity is served by these folks? <laughs> that's the question I keep asking um, now, the Communications Act of 1934, which created the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, they adopted this same language. And um, uh, Nicholas Lehman goes on to give the history of all this bureaucratic stuff. Uh, uh, let's see how Murrow handled it. Um, CBS hired Murrow thinking that they were getting an educator, not a journalist. Murrow came from a non-profit organization called the Institute of International Education. <laughs> they set up lectures and student seminars all over the world, including, as Murrow later had great occasion to regret, in the Soviet Union. But they helped scholars leave Nazi Germany. That's a biggie. Now, like all great stars, Murrow was complicated. He was both a raw-boned son of the West. He'd grown up in Washington State, worked in logging camps, and a rising young man of the Eastern Establishment. He was elected a member of the Council on Foreign Relations while still in his mid-twenties. Ed Murrow's title when he joined CBS in 1935 was... Director of Talks. <laughs> now, there you go. That's a title I'd give my eye teeth for. I want to be Director of Talks. CBS sent Murrow to London with the title of European Director. Anyway, uh, he was a grand guy to work with, according to all his colleagues. Uh, <laughs> he said, yes, well, he was afraid he wouldn't be able to do any talking on the radio himself, but... Anyway, uh, seasons of retrospective Murrow worship come regularly. They have come regularly since uh, his death in 1965 of lung cancer at the age of 57. It's about like Bogart, right? Early death from cigarettes. Usually, yes, usually these um, retrospective retrospectives coincide with a bad moment for television journalism. That is, a, a reporting scandal, a newsroom, budget cuts, censorship, attacks from outsiders, the cancellation of a respected program, the death of a prominent broadcaster. Yes, we think of uh, uh, Bill Moyers and uh, Ted Koppel. They would be the ones that would come to my mind lately. Uh, uh, Lehman goes on to write that we're in such a season right now. Its most obvious manifestation is George Clooney's black and white movie about Murrow's confrontation with Senator Joe McCarthy in 1954, Good Night and Good Luck. 
A few months earlier, there was a gift box of Muroania. Muroiania, I guess that would be, that is to say, uh, tapes of Murrow. It's called the Edward R. Murrow Collection, which CBS had originally produced on video cassette in 1991. It's now released on DVD. That's called the Edward R. Murrow Collection. You can get that on DVD. In 2004, former National Public Radio host Bob Edwards published a short book called Edward R. Murrow and the Birth of Broadcast Journalism. Okay, right, that's the one that we give people who uh, want to become <laughs> anger men, yes. Uh, both Edward's book explicitly and good night and good luck obliquely make it clear why, just why this is a Murrow season. It looks as if, once again, right-wing politicians are trampling on civil liberties in the name of protecting the country from a terrifying global threat. Ho, ho. It looks as if. Yes, for terrorism, read communism, that sort of thing. It's just another ism. Anyway, uh, he goes on and on about the commercialism and the superficiality in broadcast news. We all know that. We all know that the owners avoid controversy, cut the budgets, and focus on producing the profits that Wall Street demands. So we're back in the 50s, folks. Okay. Murrow represents a kind of implacable, heroic, journalistic courage that could sweep away all the obstacles in its path. Now, Bob Edwards' book is slight. It's a useful summary of Murrow's life story, but it's not a real addition to our understanding of him. Now, the movie, Good Night and Good Luck, is not history exactly, but it is ambitious and stylishly done. I should say so. Yes, it's a beautiful film. High school teachers take note. All teachers take note. Get this movie. Uh, share it with the students and ask what they think. Okay. Um, as claustrophobic as the 1950s were in liberal memory, most of the action in the movie takes place in a few drab, crowded, smoky rooms. Most of the characters are men with white shirts and slicked down hair. <laughs> Have a footnote here. One of my very favorite actresses, Patricia Clarkson, she's in this picture. Uh, she's got this wonderful part. But anyway, you, you may have seen her in Six Feet Under, another one of my fave, favorite shows, um, Patricia Clarkson. Anyway, she seems to be what I would call uh, with the inside group in the pictures these days. Everybody seems to like her. Uh, the film makes you feel trapped inside a culture intolerant of dissent, worshipful of normalcy and prosperity. Kind of like now, right? Uh, and they're being subjected to a relentless onslaught by McCarthy and his allies that nobody has the courage to resist. Clooney and his star, David Strathern, uh, elect to portray Murrow as a grim, tight-lipped cipher who never smiles never ingratiates himself, laughs only mirthlessly as a way of indicating how bad things really are. He's a martyr who seems to be in constant torment. The movie briefly shows Murrow hosting his celebrity interview show person to person, but it presents him as suffering through it. 
Clooney's film takes great pains to be accurate about all the specifics. It isn't just the way people dressed and carried themselves. Every word Strathairn says on the air, Murrow said on the air. I will repeat that. This is an exact, exact historical record. Uh, no, no, um, uh, well, obviously there are changes, uh, you know, in the, the, the fictional script, but all the broadcast material was broadcast back then when. Anyway, um, the moral shortcomings by today's lights that pertain to the McCarthy story, such as his having voluntarily signed the CBS loyalty oath, are duly inserted somewhere or other in the screenplay. In other words, they don't avoid the truth. Still, without ever misstating anything, good night and good luck leaves you with the impression that Murrow was an early and dispositive attacker of McCarthy, and that isn't exactly the case. Murrow was genuinely courageous, but not just in this instance. The real story is more complicated. Now, the part of Murrow's journalistic career that was most glorious and least difficult was his radio reporting during the Second World War. Now, even I remember that. Uh, not too well, but I do remember it. I remember at least that the grown-ups around me were glued to the radio during the Second World War. And this happened especially during the Battle of Britain. One can imagine Murrow's sudden appearance generating some humping around today since he'd never worked as a reporter before. But he was immediately terrific at it. He had a great story to cover. But it's a journalistic skill to maneuver oneself into that situation. He could easily have remained in New York in the late 30s. Murrow's reporting conveyed the feeling of a correspondent who's all over his story, who goes everywhere, knows everybody. He seemed to experience life with a special intensity and empathy. He could capture those qualities in his reports. In broadcasting from a London rooftop, while German bombers were overhead, Murrow was among the first to use ambient sound in radio journalism. Uh, footnote here, I remember the horror I felt with the reporters up there <laughs> on the roof of the Baghdad hotels. I thought, oh boy, you know. They think of themselves as Edward R. Murrow reincarnated. Anyway, uh, Murrow also called more vivid attention to the plight of the Londoners as well as to himself. He spoke to the listener as a friend. Bob Edwards quotes in entirety a couple of Murrow's most famous radio broadcasts, one from a bombing run from England to Berlin and back. Murrow made 25 of these trips which were so dangerous that some of the people around him thought he had a death wish. And the other was from the liberation of Buchenwald. Okay, here is a passage from the, the liberation of Buchenwald. In another part of the camp, they showed me the children, hundreds of them. Some were only six. One rolled up his sleeve, showed me his number. It was tattooed on his arm. D-6030 it was. The others showed me their numbers. They will carry them until they die. And here's a passage 
from the uh, bombing run between England and uh, Berlin. This is his broadcast, quote, The clouds were gone, and the sticks of incendiaries from the preceding waves made the place look like a badly laid out city with the street lights on. The small incendiaries were going down like a fistful of white rice thrown on a piece of black velvet. I was thrown to the other side of the cockpit, and there below were more incendiaries glowing white than turning red. The cookies, the 4,000-pound high explosives, were bursting below like great sunflowers gone mad. And then, as we started down again, still held in the lights, I remembered, I remembered a whole basket of incendiaries in the belly in the belly of the plane. The light still held us. I was very frightened. Anyway, uh, there's more of this. I'm uh, I'm skimming over an article in the New Yorker for January 23rd and 30th of this year. It's a lot of background and fill about uh, uh, Edward R. Murrow. <laughs> the the knight in shining armor, the hero of journalism. Uh, it does seem, yes, that he's like uh, some of our boys in Baghdad. He really got off on these uh, these blitzkriegs, yes, uh, firestorms, Zeus with the thunderbolt. Anyway, during the war, Murrow never had to play the role of dispassionate reporter. He was an important player in the Allied war effort, and under the circumstances that did not conflict with his journalistic role. His special significance was in making Americans see, through his broadcasts about the Blitz, that the European war was not something far away and irrelevant. When Harry Hopkins, the right-hand man of FDR, came to London for a visit 11 months before Pearl Harbor, he met with three people on his first day in town, Anthony Eden, Winston Churchill, and Ed Morrow. <laughs> anyway, they go on to tell us uh, gossip about Morrow having a wartime affair with Churchill's daughter-in-law, Pamela Digby Churchill. Hmm. Oh, I remember her. She married uh, Averill Harriman. Anyway, there's much more gossip here, yes, 1956, Murrow advising Adlai Stevenson on how to use TV in his presidential campaign. Didn't use it well enough, I guess. Uh, anyway, uh, there's a lot of, of uh, storm and angst and troubled, troubled times for the next couple of decades. I did want to take time to tell you about his See It Now broadcasts. Um, I remember myself, people struggling with the question of how to respond to the excesses of American anti-communists. Uh, these reporters didn't know what to do because they were, of course, officially anti-communist. But, uh, you know, the thing got worse and worse. Um, by the time the first See It Now program on McCarthy aired in 1954, McCarthy was certainly past the height of his powers. In other words, this goes on to explain, he was gettable. 
He was gettable, and Morrow got him. <laughs> it's impossible to imagine the McCarthy broadcasts happening today. There's a lot of dispute over uh, who asked Morrow not to do the first show. Yes, that goes on and on. And then his exuberant producer, Fred Friendly, just decided to go ahead on his own and... Uh, the program ended with Murrow looking straight into the camera and saying, the actions of junior senator, of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. <laughs> he responded to McCarthy by saying that the American public would have to decide, quote, who has served his country better, Senator McCarthy or I? Okay. Uh, Newsweek promptly ran a cover story, not on McCarthy, but on whether or not journalists should editorialize. Yes, well, it was great TV. It was a showdown between a journalist and a politician. Gee, we haven't had those since uh, Katrina. We did have a little one during uh, the f aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Anyway, the days when a major figure on network television can pick that kind of a fight and openly state political opinions on prime time, those are long gone. In the first place, you couldn't get that kind of an audience anymore. You know, that was back in the day when there were only the three networks. Um, today, the famous broadcast journalists are far more likely to battle each other than the Washington officials. Uh, Murrow's McCarthy shows make an absurdity of the modern-day conservative accusation that, say, Dan Rather represents the introduction of a heretofore unknown ideological strain into broadcast journalism. The Murrow broadcasts were far more nakedly political than anything on network television today. They came from a source with a much bigger share of and more adoration from the audience that anybody has now. Uh, anyway, I'm reading to you from... Uh, uh, Nicholas Lehman's article on Edward R. Murrow as background for the movie Good Night and Good Luck, which has just been released on DVD and is available for educators and people who are just political junkies like me. Uh, it's strange to think uh, that this is now mythology. It's part of our master narrative, our hero myth. Um the best journalists, guys like uh, Ed Murrow, are often sentimentalists who subscribe to the great man theory of history. They see public affairs as a titanic struggle between heroes and villains. Yes, that's the Western myth. Uh-huh. Let's see. Uh, the real story, yes. The real story is much more complicated, uh, the CBS reports there, as I said, there is a uh, DVD out now in which you can get a lot of his uh, shows. See it now. I liked best the ones of the Depression era, the work of the photographers, Dorothea Lange, that kind of thing. Uh, all the images of poverty and hunger in uh, the 30s. Uh, yes. And the point that uh, Lehman tries to make here is that it isn't possible anymore uh, to do this sort of thing, to tackle a politician, because uh, uh, 
the government has deregulated broadcasting. The fairness doctrine no longer exists. Regulation, license revocation, or reallocation of the spectrum are no longer meaningful possibilities. <laughs> yes, you know, they didn't have to do anything. They bought it. Yes, the, the rise of public broadcasting has freed the networks to be even more commercial. The standard today is to have smart, competent, physically magnetic people who do straight news gravely. Oh, golly. It is so sad, it makes me, it makes me gloomy, but I'm one of those who thinks that hope springs eternal. We will have our heroes, and they won't look like Edward R. Murrow. They'll look like something absolutely new and wonderful. This has been Jennifer Stone. Be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy... Go as easy as you can. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. On Sunday, March 19th at 7 p.m., KPFA will present Culture Clash's new play, Zorro in Hell. California was born from a clash of cultures, and now the trio Culture Clash explodes the myths surrounding its creation. Zorro in Hell explores homeland security in the Wild West during a time when Anglo-Americans struggle with Mexican immigration, Indian gambling, and a governor born on foreign soil. Experience the explosion and join the cast at a wine and dessert reception following the performance. Sunday, March 19th, 7 p.m. at the Berkeley Repertoire Theater, located at 2025 Addison Street in Berkeley. Theater is wheelchair.